see you back here at the JRM Sydney podcast. We hope you will be blessed in the new series for this month, Disciplines of Grace. Now, open your ears, brain and heart as we listen in. God bless. Lord, also this month, we are starting a new series and we are calling this series uh, Disciplines of Grace. Everyone say with me, Disciplines of Grace. Amen. And with that response, I ask you to stand up and um, massage the person on your right. <laughs> yeah, your, your household sitting together anyway. So person on your right, husband, wife, yeah, households together. <laughs> okay, on the left, on the left, that's fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, you may not take your seats. Come on. So we're calling this message Disciplines of Grace. And uh, the reason why we are uh, proceeding with this message, we really wanted to establish at the beginning of the year what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the Bible calls the followers of Jesus as disciples, right? So the word disciple in itself uh, comes from the same root word as discipline. So as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus basically taught his disciples spiritual disciplines that they should do and Jesus himself has modeled them. Now the word disciple basically uh, just means student or follower. And we know that Jesus has been called in the New Testament rabbi or teacher or master by his disciples. And all these uh, spiritual disciplines are essential and necessary as Jesus has taught his disciples for their spiritual growth and for them to be strong and uh, healthy in terms of their spiritual lives. One example of this, uh, I'll just give you a framework of what this next coming week's we will be discussing on, and I will be encouraging you also as 21st century disciples to practice because it doesn't make sense that we call ourselves followers of Jesus and we don't follow what he has modeled for us. Amen? So, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, it outlines some of those spiritual disciplines that Jesus himself has modeled and taught his disciples. Uh, verse 2, it says, so when you give... When you pray in verse 5 and then when you fast, it's a whole chapter of talking about the difference of a disciple of Jesus Christ versus just plain religiosity, right? So when you give, when you pray, when you fast, Jesus has used the word when instead of if. He didn't say if you give, if you pray, if you fast, right? The word when, the, the word if is a conditional clause. You know, if Jesus has used the word if, it means that it's up to you if you want to do it, right? But Jesus uses the word when, and that entails that Jesus was actually expecting his disciples to do them, amen? When you give, when you pray, when you fast, the disciplines that Jesus was teaching the disciples, or God basically in the whole of Scripture is teaching the disciples is for our own benefit. Amen? Uh, we here who are parents um, teach our children disciplines, right? And most of the time, there is a struggle because normally your children wouldn't like those disciplines that you are teaching. You'd have to remind them again and again and again. At first, you have to teach them. Say, for example, brushing their teeth, right? That is a discipline that you want them to learn. Why? Because it's for their health. Amen? It's for their physical health. Uh, people who are disciplined in exercise, you know, uh, work out. Can you look at the person next to you? Exercise thou. <laughs> you know, why do we encourage such discipline? It is because it is for our health. And just as, you know, uh, our parents, uh, our physical parents are concerned with our health and well-being, God, our Father, is also concerned with our spiritual health and well-being. 
we don't like that word discipline so much. Yeah? <laughs> it's not really our favorite word. <laughs> it means basically repetition and continuously doing what it, it requires for us to do. When we were students, uh, we know it's necessary for us to have a discipline of study. <laughs> and we, we don't really, you know, kind of uh, like that very much. But discipline produces health. And health produces growth, and uh, growth produces strength. Amen? So, once again, we call it disciplines of grace. Why? Because normally when we think of discipline, we, talk, we think about it as an obligation. You know, when we look at these spiritual disciplines in the lenses of religion, it becomes a, an obligation. But when we look at these disciplines in the lens of grace it becomes a joy it has to be it has to it has to be perceived as a privilege and an honor to practice rather than i have to do this or i got to do this the language becomes i get to do this it is an honor and a privilege to participate into the divine activity that God invites us into. It's a discipline of grace because it is really uh, the reason that we call it discipline of grace because we can only really do it when God really has called us to participate in it. Amen. One of the verses that we like in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, it says, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, See that you also excel in the grace of giving. Look at how Paul frames that word, the grace of giving. Um, and it is so, it is so. Uh, David looks at it that way as well. When he was about to build the temple in the Old Testament, he was saying to God, who are we that we can give to you? You own everything. <laughs> like what? What, who are we fooling here? We don't really give to you. We're just bringing to you what you already own. Amen? And that's such a grace because in the first place, the, we can only really give because God has given us first. Amen? Amen. So today, that's what I want to talk about. And since it's our first Fruit Sunday, I want to talk to you do, about the discipline of giving. The discipline of first fruits. Uh, in the Bible, we call it the principle of the first. And shall we bow down our heads and close our eyes as we ask the Lord for help this morning. Father, we give you glory. We give you thanks. We adore you this morning and we pray, Lord, that you will help us. Your spirit will help us to rise above our flesh, to rise above our human logic. Lord God, you dwell in the supernatural and in the spiritual and you who have caused us to be alive spiritually, you have called us to come up here, come up here. I mean to rise above, Lord God, in our spiritual capabilities as well. So Lord, enable us to understand your word. It's only your spirit that can illuminate these words so that we can, Lord God, practice it in our lives. We thank you, Lord. Transform us the way we think and our hearts, Lord. This is yours in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, before I share with you the three principles that I, uh, I would like to, to just really make you understand, um, there are two principles at work here. There are what we call uh, physical laws and spiritual laws. And, you know, this physical laws and spiritual laws are already set. It's already written. We cannot do anything about it. <laughs> God is the maker of this law. So, say for example, if I, if I let go of this bottle, what will happen to it? It will fall, right? Because the law of gravity is in operation. Yeah? And we cannot do anything about it. It is already set. The law of gravity tells us that, you know, everything will fall. If you drop a, a, a steel or a heavy object into the ocean, what's going to happen? Into the water, what's going to happen? It's going to sink, you know? 
law of buoyancy is in effect, law of inertia, all these physical laws are in our nature. Now, as much as physical laws are operational and working, there are spiritual laws that are set by the Lord and it is working and we can never do anything about it. It's God who has decided for it to be in place. Now, the wonderful thing about uh, you know, being a disciple or a follower of Jesus is that He reveals to us spiritual laws so that we can operate in it. Amen? So spiritual laws, normally in the Bible, you see most of the time, spiritual laws defies physical laws. Yeah, so the, the, when, when, when Peter was walking on water, it's impossible. It's, it's not, doesn't, doesn't submit to physical laws. It, it is, uh, when, when Jesus fed the 5,000, it's impossible. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. When the healing of the sick, raising of the dead, you know, all these miracles that Jesus has performed when he was walking on earth, they are what we call miraculous or supernatural. Now we call it supernatural because we live in the natural realm. We are, you know, human logic tells us what physical, physical loss should be like. So we, we call it supernatural. But Jesus or God dwells in the supernatural realm, in the spiritual realm. And when he was doing all these miracles, when he was doing all these uh, miraculous things, for him it is natural. Because he dwells, he lives in the spiritual realm. Are, are, are you getting the point? Are you following me? Now, uh, the spiritual principles are written all over the scriptures. And when we study them, when we listen to it, when we read our Bibles, when we get to know the Word of God, God reveals to us many of these spiritual principles that we can uh, live in or apply in our lives. Now, in terms of giving, it's amazing how God uh, writes the spiritual laws that always baffles our minds. It's almost like a, a, a contradiction to our logic. He says the last will be first and the first will be last. What does that mean? Right? He says that the least among you will be the greatest and the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. It's an upside down, almost upside down. Oh, most of the time, the spiritual principles are an upside down principles that human logic would not really agree initially. Are you following? Jesus says, love your enemies. What? <laughs> your human logic will say, no, I can't love my enemy. That's a spiritual principle that Jesus is teaching. Forgiveness is supernatural. How can you forgive someone who has hurt you many times? And in fact, Jesus says, you will forgive them 70, 77 times 7. <laughs> How can that be possible if we remain in the natural and in the human logic alone, that's impossible, Lord. But we are called to live the spiritual life. Amen. The Bible was written so we can know these eternal and spiritual principles and so that we may follow it. Jesus teaches his disciples spiritual principles. And at first, his disciples kept on stumbling in the, in, the, in the shadow because for them, it's not natural until they grow spiritually and they too become, the supernatural becomes natural. Amen. Amen. So let's talk about first fruits. It's one of those consistent principles written all over our scriptures and that's the reason why we practice it in our church. I'll share with you three principles and the first one is this, and it's very simple. God owns everything. Amen. Amen. And say to the person next to you, God owns everything. And this is obvious. We all know this, yeah? We all know this. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. Psalm 50 verse 10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. 
this spiritual principle has to be forefront and dominant in our thoughts. You know why? Because you'll never be able to live in humility and submission to God until you have the revelation and conviction that God owns everything. You will never. If you think that you own the things you own, you will not be a good steward of it. Even our very breath, God owns. Our very life, God owns. Now, here's the thing. You can own everything, yes, but you cannot possess anything. They are God's possessions. Oh, but Pastor Jeff, my house, it's mine. No, God gave it to you. No, but I bought it with the wealth that I earned from my work. God gave you your work. No, but that's my flesh, but that's my, my labor, my sweat, blood, and tears. God gave you your blood. <laughs> God gave you your time. God gave you every waking morning. God gave you the sun to, to shine. God gave you the oxygen you breathe. God owns everything. So if this is not settled in our hearts, it's impossible for us to give Him back what belongs really to Him. Are you following me? And God has this word in Psalm 50 verse 10, everything is mine. God is the only one who has the right to say that word, mine. And it is not a selfish thing. It is a statement of a fact. It belongs to Him. When we understand this first principle, we become good stewards. Stewards means that you are caretakers of what has been entrusted to you. Amen. Your life, you're stewarding your life. Your children, you are stewarding your children. Your properties, you are stewarding your properties because they all belong to God. Amen. Say to the person next to you, God owns everything. We are very touristy. When we go to the Blue Mountains, when you go to uh, you know, New Zealand or wherever you go for a vacation and you are amazed and uh, you know, uh, in awe of the wonder of creation. You know, the stars in the night, uh, the billions of stars that we see in the sky, the vastness of the Blue Mountains when you go there. You know, when you look at that, you realize God owns all this. This all belongs to Him. And everything was created, says in Colossians, so everything was created for and to Him, for Him, by Him. All things were created for His glory. Amen? Amen. So, this is really going to be quick. Second principle, the first one is God owns everything. But even though God owns everything, second principle is that God claims the first. God claims the first. Now, looking at that, if you will realize it, God is not a taker. He is a giver. Our God is not a taker. He is a giver. Why? Because He only claims the first. The rest is yours. Are you following? He claims the first. And this is a principle of the first that we have to understand. And as Christians, as children of God, if this becomes our lifestyle, I'll tell you the truth. The promises of God will be so fulfilled in your life. God is not a liar. He is not a liar. That verse that you can see right there. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. God is not a liar. When He says it, He means it. And if people will obey it, He will do His part. Amen. God claims the first. What does that mean? Let me bring you to Exodus chapter 13 just as an example. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament, God's people, this is established uh, principle. This is an established lifestyle. For us, the 21st century Christians, because we have been so ignorant about the Bible, we don't really practice this anymore. And that's why here in our church, we want to really uh, establish this and Encourage it as our lifestyle that we will always put God first. Whoever you put first is your God. Whatever you put first is your God. Amen. God claims the first. And there's a reason 
why God encourages His people to put Him first. It's not, he's not insecure. He's God of the universe seated on the throne. He's not insecure like, oh, why are you not putting me first? No. He is telling us to put Him first, not for His benefit. He owns everything. It's for your benefit. That's why He's claiming the first. In your heart, He wants to be first. Exodus 13, for example, is a scenario wherein it says, Consecrate to me, says the Lord, all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, it's mine. There's that word again. It's mine. And I could not emphasize this enough. In the Hebrew translation, this is very, very stressed. It is mine. It's my possession. It doesn't belong to you. It is mine. The first, it's mine. It's, it's a very strong word if you, um, if you translate it uh, uh, literally in the Hebrew. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives, gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb. Now pay attention on this verse. Verse 13. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Verse 14, it continues, In days to come, when your son asks you, obviously the children will ask, why are you killing this these animals? What is the meaning of these sacrifices, of these offerings? When your children ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now, what's the intention of the Lord here? God commands this as a gesture to the people of Israel for remembrance, thanksgiving unto what the Lord has done. It's a remembrance and thanksgiving of their version of salvation. They were saved from being enslaved in Egypt and they were given a land flowing with milk and honey, now having their own property and possessions. Before, they don't even own their own lives. They were owned by the Egyptian masters. But God rescued them and gave them freedom so that they will have their own property and get back their life and their freedom. Amen? So it is for remembrance and thanksgiving. And then also, it is a gesture of trust. It's a gesture of trust. Basically, that when the, when the firstborn was, was born and then they offered the firstborn, it's as if they are saying, God, we know you will provide more. Obviously, the, burnt, uh, the sacrifices will not be consumed by them. It will be offered completely unto the Lord. Are you still following me? Yes? You're learning from this. Now, the firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. The firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. What's the significance of this? Pastor Jeff, I'm not an Israelite, <laughs> not a Jew. So what's the, what's, what's the significance of this in our time? Now, this takes on a very symbolic meaning to us as well. The donkey, it says in verse 13, redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. So redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. So they all have different kinds of animals. And in the Jewish tradition and, and uh, lifestyle, they categorize animals into unclean and clean. Yeah. So the donkey is, as, is, as, is an unclean animal. And the lamb, obviously, is a clean animal. So this is what basically is being said the clean animal, which is the lamb, must be sacrificed to redeem the unclean animal, which is the donkey. It says there, redeem with a lamb 
Redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem the donkey, break its neck. If you don't give it, you will lose it anyway. Are you following me? Now, what's the significance of this? You and I are born unclean. We inherited what we call sin nature. We inherited that. We are born unclean. And to prove to us that it, we are born unclean, the parents in the room will basically say that you have to teach your children to be good because they have some behaviors that are bad. Who taught them that? No one. No one taught your children to be greedy, but when they go to childcare or in their school, they fight with other children over a toy, and their favorite word is mine, mine, mine. And so you as a parent, you will teach them to share. Uh, we have an old saying no? uh, in, the, in the Philippines, ah, hindi marunong magsinungaling yan, bata yan. Oh, children, they do not know how to lie. Oh, excuse me. When I was a kid, I was the most lie. I'm one of the worst liars in the world. <laughs> I was seven years old, six years old. I lie all the time to my parents. I steal from my my mom and my grandma has like a carinderia, like a, a food store. And in the afternoon, they close the store and they take a nap. And when they take a nap, I sneak in inside the store. I open the cash drawer very slowly. Very, very slowly so that they will not hear me. <laughs> and then I slip in my hand inside looking for money. No one taught me to be a thief, but I was. No one taught me. There is sin inside of each and every one of us. You know what I'm going to do with that money? I'm going to buy a toy. <laughs> because I want a toy from the other store. We have to teach our children how to be good because we are sinners. We are born unclean. That's why we need to be redeemed. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb. Now, it says in verse 13, redeem with a lamb. It means kill the lamb so that the donkey can live. Kill the lamb so that the donkey can live. Kill the lamb so that the donkey can live. That's the cross of Jesus. He was killed so you can live. Amen? That should be an aha moment. That should be like, hallelujah! Oh, amen, amen, amen. Are you amazed by that? We don't have a chance if Jesus did not die on the cross. That's why it's grace. That's why it's a discipline of grace. We offer to him the first to commemorate the freedom, to remember, to be thankful for what he has done for us. Just like how the Israelites did. Them, it was slavery in Egypt and to the promised land. For us, it's slavery to sin. And God has set us free and gave us a new life. Amen. And you give the Lord the best claps of praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, this is the thing. And the principle of the Bible is this. When the first is offered, the rest will be blessed. When the first is offered, the rest will be blessed. Jesus was, uh, in the New Testament, also symbolically mentioned as the first fruit of God. God was the first one who offered, not us. It was God who offered Jesus as a first fruit so that the rest will be blessed. He was offered so that you and I will be blessed. I tell you the truth, you won't experience God's blessing if Jesus did not die on the cross. It was because of him that we experienced the blessings of God in our lives. Um, 
Now, uh, I, uh, some more verses I'd like to, to share to you. Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, it says there, in terms of putting God first and bringing the first portion unto the Lord, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Now, the house of the Lord your God, obviously, is the church. And it says there, bring the first, the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord. Also, in Malachi 3.10, talking about tithing, bring the whole tithe. Tithe is a type of first fruit. It's the first 10%. Uh, tithe just means 10% of your produce. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, you have to pay attention on that word, bring. Bring the best of the first fruits. Why is it bring and not give? Why did God not say give the first fruits of the land? It says bring because we don't own it. He owns it. Bring it. We cannot... We do, not, we do not give what we do not own. So the first fruits belongs to God. It is His anyway. And the overall attitude or, or, or um, what do you call this? The, the motive of the heart is basically that. For Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, honor the Lord with your wealth. It is the desire of a, you know, a child of God. It is the desire of a follower of Jesus to honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And it's been very specific there with the first fruits of your crops and then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. For a Christian who has been redeemed, for a person who experienced and encountered the love of God, who has been set free, who knows what God has done for him, this is not an obligation. It is a delight. It is, you know, God, I want to honor you. God, I want to give you the best that I can offer. Amen? Amen. Now, look at other principles here. When, when the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land and in the leadership of Joshua, Moses was already dead. Uh, when they were about to enter the promised land, the first of the cities that they will conquer is Jericho. Right? And it's found in jo Joshua chapter 5, verse 2, 7. And what the Lord instructs them there is that all the plunder of the land in that city in Jericho, they cannot touch it because it is His. It's the first of the many cities that they will conquer, but the first city is His. If the first of the cities of the Israelites will be conquered. Now, look at this. The Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years. They have the same clothes, they eat the same food, they don't have a comfortable bed, they are weary and tired, they, they, just want, uh, they just drink water and all that, they don't have any other drink, and perhaps some, I don't know, whatever they are drinking. But when they entered into the land of Jericho, it's a rich city, full of treasures they were. And, you know, after wandering in 40 years in the wilderness, surely the Israelites would want a little bit of comfort and a little taste of that food and a little taste of that drink. But God says, uh-uh, no touch. <laughs> the city belongs to me. And it is, you know, we can say, KJ naman ni Lord and all that. But this is what God is teaching the Israelites during that time. If you will not trust me on this, then you will not be able to conquer many other cities. This city belongs to me, but all the other cities you will, you will conquer, it is yours. It is yours. But one family there, in Joshua chapter 7, Achan, one family was disobedient. They took some jewelries and some of the clothing and hid it under his tent. And because of that disobedience, that has a consequence. When you break a spiritual law, there is a consequence. When you, break, when you jump off a building without a parachute, without anything, harness or whatsoever, what's going to happen? You're going to break bones. 
When you break a spiritual law, there is also a consequence to that. Now, Achan, because of his disobedience, his entire family suffered from it. Not just him. His entire family. And the next city that they were supposed to conquer, and it was supposed to be an easy uh, battle. You know, the next city is much smaller than Jericho. You know, they conquered Jericho, but in that next city, they, they, they lost. They lost the battle. God um, withheld his blessing from them during that time. So God claims the first. And uh, earlier, Atimavi was sharing about the example of Cain and Abel. You know, when Abel shared the best and the first portion of uh, the livestock that he is looking after, and then Cain did not offer. Uh, later on, I'll, I'll go to that part. So, anyways. Another principle that you can see uh, the first fruits operating on is the story of Abraham and Isaac. The story of Abraham and Isaac. When Jesus, when God uh, commanded Abraham to offer Isaac, Isaac was his firstborn. Uh, literally, it's, it's Ishmael who was the firstborn, but he's the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. And God knew Abraham loved Isaac so much. And so he tests Abraham. You know, first fruits principle is also a test. It's also a test of what really takes first place in our lives. Now, Abraham has Isaac as a competition to the throne of his heart. It's God or Isaac at the throne of Abraham's heart. Look at this. When, when, when God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac you know, Abraham did not have double mind about it. He knew that God owns everything. And he knew that God deserves the first. Although, logically speaking, Abraham could have thought, you know, why would I kill my son? It wouldn't make sense. And that's what spiritual life and Christian life is all about. In the journey of your faith, you will always find that God asks you for things that doesn't make sense. When God commanded Peter to step out of the boat, it doesn't make sense. When God commanded uh, the disciples to feed the 5,000 with only two fish and five loaves of bread, it doesn't make sense. When God was about to raise up Lazarus being dead for four days in the tomb and commanded the people to take off the stone, it doesn't make sense. God doesn't operate in the natural. He lives in the supernatural. And He calls us. You, obedience, your obedience will unlock the miraculous. Sometimes we want to see first before we believe. But the principle of faith is different. You believe and do what you were told, and then you will see. That's consistent throughout the scripture. They were commanded to step into the Red Sea, and then it will part. Everything doesn't make sense because the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's a right-side-up kingdom. It goes against the norms. Amen. And say to the person next to you, your obedience will unlock the miraculous. Amen? Amen. And in Genesis 22 verse 12, obviously, uh, God intervenes and it was just a test. God says to Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only Son. Now, this is a very poignant and significant point in history because God was basically saying, I know that I am number one in your heart, in your life. And because you've done this, you will be a father of many nations. You will be a father of many nations. Would you think, imagine with me for a while, what if Abraham withheld his son, Isaac? What if Abraham withheld his son Isaac unto the Lord? God could have skipped 
that generation and could have looked for another one who will be father of many nations. Because why? What, what, why am I saying this? He already skipped one. The father of Abraham is the original person that God called to be the father of many nations. But you know what happened? When they left the Chaldees, you know, the land of Ur, and was about to go to the Canaanite region, the promised land, you know, his father decided to settle in a region that, you know, they were just supposed to rest there. But his father saw that that region was okay for living and settling. And Abraham's father settled them. He was supposed to be the father of many nations, but he stopped. He did not continue. And so therefore, his son, Abraham, was the one who took it. Maybe there was a discussion. We don't know. It's not written in the Bible, but I think there is. I think there was a discussion there between Abraham and his father. But dad, God tells us to go. And his father probably, but this is already a good land. But that's not yet the promised land. My friend, don't settle with a good land. You have a good job? You have a good life? I'm okay with this life. Don't settle with that. God has a greater portion for you. Don't stop where God tells you not to stop. When He tells you to keep moving forward, when He tells you to keep serving, when He tells you to keep giving, when He tells you to keep, you know, trusting, keep moving forward. Amen. Are you with me? The first principle is that The first principle is that, amen. The second principle is, God claims the first. And the third principle is simply that God is first, amen. God is first. The story that Ate Mavi shared earlier, Cain and Abel, uh, we might kind of think why would God not accept uh, Cain's offering. It says there in Genesis 4, 3 to 5, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and, and the, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It's not that God does not want to receive Cain's offering. He could not. He could not receive Cain's offering. Why? Why he could not receive Cain's offering? There are attributes of God that cannot change. And he will never give up on this attribute. It's just consistent for who he is. For example, God is immutable. It means he cannot change. The nature of God is He cannot change because it means that if He can change, then He can improve. And then if He can improve, it means He's not perfect. He's not worthy of our worship. He should not be God. But God already is perfect. That's why He is immutable. He cannot change. Another principle is that God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. He's the Father of truth. God cannot be unfaithful. He will always... Amen. <laughs> All right. So continuing with that, you know, God cannot make a mistake. He cannot make a mistake. And one of the things that is uh, very interesting with God, God does not have new ideas. He cannot think. I mean, he, he's not like us. Uh, we say like, oh, I have, a, I have an idea. God cannot say that because He is omniscient. He is already all-knowing. He's already got everything figured out. His plan is already perfect. Amen. One of the things that God cannot be is He cannot be second. He can only be first because He is God. Now, when Cain was offering an offering, 
It basically means and uh, uh, entails that he was offering a leftover, a second best, a second best. It's not the the first fruit of his offering. It was not mentioned that it was the first. It was an offering. And God could not receive that because why? If he receives that, basically God is saying, okay, I'll take second place. And God will not humiliate himself. He will not receive a second best. Are you following me? <laughs> That's why the principle of the first fruits and the principle of the tithe, it is the first and the best of our offering unto the Lord. Now, Alan, give me your wallet. Give me your wallet. Kinakabana siya. Wala ang wallet. Leo, give me your wallet. This is not your wallet. This is your wife's purse. All right. Let's see what's inside. <laughs> okay. All right. Yo, nito walang cash. Sino may cash? <laughs> Anyways, I'll use this ones. Ligtas na kayo, ha? Peninyo, wallet. <laughs> May cash ba yan? Ah, meron konti. <laughs> Alright. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Oh, kapal. <laughs> oh, dami. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just, uh, I just really want to get your attention. Now, I'll use the illustration. Say, for example, I do have $100. I received $100. So, let's say each one is $10, right? And uh, basically, the principle of the tithe is the first 10. The first 10% of your income. And what the principle of the first fruit is or the tithing is that you give to God the first. So, say, Jerry, stand up. Stand up. Uh, Arden, stand up. Leo, stand up. Alan, stand up. So say I received my income. It's $100, right? So I'm going to go and budget and, and, and look, you know, plan my budget for, you know, my life. And so I'm looking at all my income and I say, okay, I have to give this to the mortgage company. This is for the insurance. This is for the groceries. This is for um, paying my, uh, what else, my car. And this is for, uh, what else, uh, the children's school fees. And this is for that. And this is for that. And this is for, for that. Oh, wait. I forgot about my tights. But I don't have any left. So question, was God first? I gave my first to the mortgage company. Do you know what? The mortgage company doesn't have power to bless my finances. God can. You can sit down. Pastor Jeff, I can't afford the tights. I'm just always short in budget. I tell you the truth. Until you give your tithes, you won't be able to give your tithes. The principle of the Bible is true. If you give your first unto the Lord, it has the power to break the curse of poverty over your life. It has the power to break the curse of debts in your life. If God is not, honor God with your wealth. It's very specific. It's not honor God with your talents. It's not honor God with your time. It's not honor God with your whatever. It's honor God with your wealth. And you know why God is doing this? 
Because wealth is such a powerful idol. And if wealth becomes your God, it will enslave you. It's not going to give you a freedom that you need. And God wants to set you free from that God of mammon. Amen. The Bible is very clear that offering to God the first of our produce, our income, is not optional. It is not optional. And now, a follower of God, uh, you know, if you're a Christian, then this has to be your, your truth. If you're a guest here, you might be shocked at what I'm saying now. Pastor Jeff, why are you talking about money? Why are you talking about finances? It's so personal. Well, my God is personal. And as much as I'm concerned, He owns everything. Why am I talking about money? Because Jesus did. Jesus talked about money. 16 out of the 38 parables that he teaches is about how you handle your finances. Jesus himself, Matthew 23, 23, says, you ought to tithe. If the one who died on the cross for me, my master and my savior, tells me I ought to tithe, then I will tithe. There's no debate about that. But Lord, Pastor Jeff, we are not under the law anymore. We are under grace. That's normally the discussion, right? Okay, the law also says do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet your neighbors, do not do this, do not do that. So are you saying that we should get rid of that law? So it's okay to murder? It's okay to steal? It's okay? Are you, are you following me? And also, it's a lame um, excuse. In fact, in the first place, why are you making an excuse? If God is first, then it's a non-negotiable for you, really. But look at this. If you're saying that, okay, tithing and the first fruit is under the law, then look at this analogy. The law was given to Moses. Yeah? The law was given to Moses. Who lived before Moses? Abraham did. Abraham gave a tithe unto the Lord 500 years before the law was given. Who taught Abraham that? God himself. And then, just to bring it further, who lived before Abraham? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel knew they are to give unto God. Who taught Cain and Abel? Who taught Abel to give the firstborn? Who, gave, who taught Cain to give an offering unto the Lord? It's their parents, Adam and Eve. Guess who taught Adam and Eve? God. It's not the law that tells us we should give our first fruits. It's God. And it's not within the law itself because even if you talk about, oh, we're under grace, we're now the New Testament people, we're the New Covenant. Hello? The New Testament does not just ask you to give your 10%. Jesus demands your whole life. Here's a principle that you have to understand. If you haven't really given your heart unto God, it will be very hard for you to give anything to Him that He asks. But if a heart is fully surrendered unto the Lord and you acknowledge that everything is owned by God, redeemed by God, then anything else will be a joy to offer Him because it is an offering out of love, not obligation. Amen. Amen. Come on. I am... A pastor who desires to see my congregation flourish in all aspects of their life. And God's purpose and plan for each and every one of us is a life of abundance and of fullness. But that doesn't happen outside of obedience. I want you all to flourish in every area of your life, including your finances. But the Bible teaches us that if we will not entrust unto the Lord our finances, then it can never flourish. 
you, you can make it day to day. You can work hard and really sweat blood and tears for everything. And you will have enough. But when you, God, when you offer God your first, your best, you will have more than enough. I have been here in Australia for eight years now. And uh, eight years, 2012, or oh, nearly nine years. And uh, last tiring night, I shared with the uh, people who attended the tiring night, um, this is my first journal when I arrived in Australia. Uh, I brought this from the Philippines. And, uh, my, my, my devotional journal. And uh, during the tiring, the Lord asked me to go back. I was already going to the car, and then the Lord told me, uh, get one of your journals. And then I pulled out this journal because this is what the Lord showed me. And then uh, he just reminded me, basically, there was a prayer here that I want to read. And it was my third day in Sydney. Coming from the Philippines, it was my third day in Sydney. And I was sitting at Milson's Point uh, near Luna Park, uh, just looking at the uh, Opera House. And just like many of us who have arrived here in Sydney for the first time, everything is so mesmerizing. Everything is so amazing. Amen? And um, I was sitting there doing my devotion, thanking God, and I was receiving this word from the Lord in Genesis 28, 15. And the Lord says here, what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. And I took that literally, Lord, this is your promise for me. And then I wrote, my third day here in Sydney, Australia. It is still surreal, but everything is fascinating. God is a God of timing. Though I am excited for much of the things prepared for me here and all the experiences, my heart is much more thrilled in the truth that God is giving me a new beginning, a new chapter in which He is showing Himself in fresh new ways, in more amazing ways. It's like being born again. Everything is new. I was listening to some preachings yesterday and everything I've heard was fitting to the season I have right now. I need to hear and absorb this to prepare my heart. I know that sooner or later it will be hard work for me, but God is making me ready for everything that's coming. Thank you, God, for I can sense that you are preparing me. Thank you, Lord, that you are giving me clarity and courage. The lens you are providing is helping me see these things in the right perspective. I know, Lord, that this is not just for me, but your blessings will flow through me. I am deeply overwhelmed and grateful for your grace, your love, your goodness. More than all these things, continually keep my heart in the state of gratitude. And that nothing fascinates me more than you. Make my heart humble yet confident. Continue, Lord, to guide my steps and don't let me be a burden here. I don't want to be a burden. I want to be a blessing. I'm really excited for all the things, Lord, that you have prepared. But don't let me miss the mark. I don't want to miss you in the midst of all this excitement. I just want to enjoy you for it was said that you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your faithfulness. Help me to always put you first. I am loving and knowing you more, Jesus. I love you. And then I put a PS in there. It says, help me to fully obey you and listen to what the Spirit is saying. And please help me memorize verses. <laughs> it's my first journal. 2012. I've never seen what the years are going to be like after this moment. But looking back now, I came here in Australia with just a luggage. Like most of you have. You came here with just a luggage. But look at what you have right now. The Lord has blessed you. The Lord has blessed you. There is a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 17 to 18. It's not on the screen. It says, Do not say to yourself, 
my power and the might of my own hand gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. It is He who has enabled us. Now that story that we're talking about in First Exodus chapter 13 earlier, when the parent kills a lamb to offer the first of the livestock to redeem the donkey. Just imagine a family in that time, shepherding business. The father kills animals every year. And the child will be wondering and maybe asking the father, what does, what does this mean? We could have just sold this lamb and could have earned more. We are in a shepherding business, dad. Why are you killing the lambs? And the father will say to the child, My son, when we were in Egypt, when you were not yet born, I didn't even own my life. I was a slave. I didn't own anything. But God, with a mighty hand, brought us out of Egypt and gave us this promised land. In days to come, in verse 14, it says, With a mighty hand, you will say to your child, The Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When I have a child one day in the future, if the Lord blesses me with children, and when one day they will see how much I am giving to the Lord, how much I'm giving to the church, and they might ask, Dad, why are you giving so much to the church? You could have just saved it and buy the things we need. You know what I will tell my child? I will tell my child, you know what? If you only knew me before I knew Jesus, we will never have a future like this. We will never have a life like this. But because of the blood of Jesus, because of God's first fruit offering, we have the life that we have right now. Because of God's goodness and generosity, we have the life that we have right now. My friend, your God is not a taker. He's a giver. But it's not fitting for us to call Him God, my God, if He is not our first. Look back in your life. You might be looking at the things that you are lacking right now. But look at how God has provided so far. And trust me in this, if you anchor your faith in the Lord, if you make this a discipline of grace, always offering to God the first, always giving to God the first of the harvest, always giving unto God the best portion, always God, you know, when God sees that, when God sees that, you cannot outgive God. You will never outgive God. You will never. Amen. Would you all stand up on your feet? We'll proceed with our communion. And then we will be proceeding with our first fruit offerings. So would you hold to the communion cups in your hand? And also hold, on the other hand, your first fruit offerings. If you're giving online, you can also hold the envelopes on your chairs as a symbol of what you are giving. And if you haven't prepared anything today, really, there's no condemnation, my friend. You know, if you have understood this message and you wanted to respond, you have all the other Sundays coming for you to respond to it. But this is a discipline of grace. It is something that we were called to do and something that we get to do to participate in what God is doing on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, Jesus, we thank you, Lord. Lord, it is you who first gave us your first and your best. For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son. It's not even the first fruit. It is the only one that heaven holds as the most dear treasure. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God has given His first, because God has given His Son, then the rest is blessed. The rest will be blessed. Those who put their faith in Him has a promise of blessedness. But that is not just for us, Lord. You do not just want to bless us for us. You want to bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. Lord, we commemorate just like in the days of old when your people offered unto you their first fruit offering. Lord, we offer our first fruit offering today. And Lord, as we do so, we commemorate what first you have given freely you have given us freely we will give freely we have received freely we will offer and this is a joy in our hearts lord lord may you delight in our offering may you delight in our offering for many of us it might have taken faith really sacrifice something that has been battled in our minds but what about this but what about that don't be condemned if you felt that way because now that you have decided no, I will stand on my faith, I will give the Lord what's best, this is a gesture of trust God, I trust you when we give our first fruit there are three things that we are doing we are thanking God for His faithfulness and blessing us in the past we are declaring that we are, He is first in our lives in the present and we are trusting Him for the future. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, let's offer our hearts unto the Lord. Let's offer our hearts first unto the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus. Oh. 